0: Please turn with me then to our our text today which comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 16 to 22 Sadly this is our our second to last sermon in 1 Thessalonians second to last next week will be the final sermon So today we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 Verses 16 to 22. So hear with me then the reading of God's holy word. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good abstain from every form of evil. Thus far as the reading of God's Word. Well, I'm going to assume this morning that everyone here at some point in your life has been to the birthday party of a small child. And so in using this example, you might be able to understand and, and empathize with what I'm going to say. Okay? So when our oldest was a wee little boy, we would take him to Chuck E. Cheese for his birthday. Chuck E. Cheese. We all know Chuck E. Cheese. It's a place where a kid can be a kid, right? Okay. There are games everywhere in all directions. They have a giant ball pit that the kids can hop in and get lost in. There's these interconnected tubes that go throughout the building that they can crawl in. And when they've gassed themselves out after all their playtime, they can run up to the counter and they can redeem a prize with the With the tickets that they've won, and it's a blast for the kids. They have such an enjoyable time. But for the parents, this is a stressful time. It's a stressful time because we know as as soon as we arrive, and your child sees their you know their school friends or their cousins or something, the jackets come off, the shoes get kicked off, and they are out and they just run, they bolt, right? Anywhere they want to go, they just run. And so for us, we're, we're trying to keep an eye on our child as they're running around with a hundred other children that look just like them, running around with them. Right? There's no real organization. Everyone does their own thing. Right? Whatever catches your child's eye, they run to. Right? And so you just had to keep up. And so for those few hours, for the parents it's a stressful time. Maybe it's a time in which you're feeling uncomfortable. Perhaps I know for us sometimes we had moments of fear, When you lost where your child was in the, in the midst of everybody. But now what if I said that this described this church or any church for that matter? You would say that's not a church that I would want to be at because they're missing or they're lacking what's necessary for any rightly ordered church. And that's peace. They're missing peace, right? Chaos. And disorder is okay for a birthday party. That's to be expected. But not at church. Because chaos, stress, everyone doing their own things, going in their own directions, is counterproductive to the rightly ordered church. It's opposed to the will of God for His church. And so in order that we reflect God's rightly ordered church here on earth, we need peace. Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, says to the church in Colossae, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. And so I ask, why is it important for peace to reign in the church? Why is it important for peace to reign in your heart and to reign in my heart and in the heart of every saint in the church? It's because if it doesn't, conflict, discord, And disunity will occur, which is incompatible with what we see Paul says the purpose of being called into this one body was for, which is peace. If chaos and disorder summed up our time together, it would mean that this church is not in agreement with God and His purpose. He desires unity and harmony. And so it's important. It's necessary. That this place be a, a place of peace. That we be a congregation of peace. Because our God is a God of peace. This is why peace is so heavily emphasized here in verses 12 to 28 as we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? If God is a God of peace, as Paul says He is in verse 23, then the church as His people... This church ought to be the place where peace becomes most apparent. Peace ought to characterize this church. Like we seen last week, Paul asked for peace amongst the saints. We are to be at peace with those who have authority over us in the church. We are to be at peace with our pastors. We are to be at peace with one another. In verse 13, where Paul says, be at peace with yourselves. Yet that is not all he asked for. We're not just to be at peace with ourselves, we're to be at peace with more than just ourselves. If that was just the standard, many, many organizations or groups might be able to say, yeah, we have peace here. We we were at peace with ourselves. But the peace that Paul called us to extends beyond the bounds and the boundaries of this building. The peace Paul calls for extends beyond the relationship between believer and believer. And that can only be accomplished because this peace is something that is granted to us by God. The God of peace blesses us with peace, which then enables us to be at peace with others. It also enables us to have peace within ourselves. Right? That we might know ourselves inwardly. That we might know God. That we might... Know our standing as those in Christ so that no matter what comes our way, our peace will not be shaken. The peace that comes from the assurance of knowing that God is always working for us in every circumstance we are in. Individually and in the life of the church. And so this week as we look at verses 16-22, to we'll see how that peace in the rightly ordered church is nourished and expressed in reference to God. As we've already seen how it is to be expressed amongst the saints within the church. And so we're going to look at two points this morning. Two points. And the first point then is obedience. Our first point is obedience. Our second point this morning is discernment. So obedience and discernment. And we can really break these two points down neatly in these seven verses that we have. So, obedience, our our first point, we'll see in verses 16 to 18. Discernment, our second point, we will see in verses 19 to 22. So, let us look once more at verses 16 to 18 as we look at point one. Paul says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so I ask brothers and sisters, who is it in our own lives that we've seen who have been the most joyful of people? And when I say joyful, I mean what Paul means, being able to rejoice always in whatever circumstance you're in. And wouldn't you say it's, it would be some Christian person in your life, whether that was a believing mother or father, maybe a believer within the church, perhaps it would be your spouse, but these are the people who we find having the most joy in their lives. Not as the world might think. The world might think those who have fame or who have money and prestige, those would be the people with most joy. But they're not. And that's because this real joy that Paul speaks of, having joy or rejoicing in all circumstances, is not common to all people. And it isn't real or lasting if it comes or goes with temporal enjoyment if having or not having affects your joyful disposition, then it's not real joy. And so we might say that this joy that Paul speaks of is rather rare. We might call it a a rare jewel. Something precious. Something that's hard to find. Because everyone can rejoice when things go good, can't they? When you get the job you want, we rejoice. That's easy. When you close on the home you desired, You rejoice. And so there's nothing special. There's nothing unique about rejoicing when things go well. What's special and what's unique is being able to rejoice when things don't go well. When those lawful, earthly enjoyments you have are snatched and taken away from you. Think about your freedom, for example. We all love our freedom, don't we? Well, what happens if The police walked in here right now and arrested all of us and took us to jail just for worshiping God. And they said, you know what? One of the sentences that that might befall you is death. Could we still rejoice? Because Paul does. Paul does. Remember in his letter to the Philippians, what happens? Paul is arrested. He's imprisoned. And he's awaiting his sentence, which may be death. But you remember as we went through Philippians, maybe six months ago or so, how we had to point out constantly how Paul brings up the joy he had in telling the saints to rejoice from the beginning to the end of the letter. He opens the letter by saying that he prays to God for them with joy. Remember he described that there were Others, preaching Christ out of rivalry and envy, hoping that Paul's going to receive a greater punishment because of it. And what does Paul say? I don't care what the reason is they preach. As long as Christ's name is proclaimed, I rejoice. Even if it meant greater punishment for Paul. Paul says, you should rejoice. And I rejoice that I'm being poured out as a drink offering for you. This is what it means to always rejoice. You can recall from the beginning of this letter, 1 Thessalonians. The the Thessalonian saints are praised for this. If you remember chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, And you became imitators of us and of our Lord, for you received the Word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, this is why joy is hard to come across. Because it is something that comes from outside of ourselves. It is the joy of the Holy Spirit given to you and to us, so like Paul and like the Thessalonians, we can rejoice when hard times and when trials come upon us. And that's because, brothers and sisters, joy isn't what the world thinks it is. Joy isn't some happy, emotional feeling that we get when things go our way. But rather, what the joy Paul speaks of is that inward disposition within us that knows... It has knowledge of who Christ is and what He has accomplished for you and I. So if someone comes in here today and they arrest us and imprison us, we can still be found rejoicing. Not because we love that our freedom is taken from us, but because we know that these things now are only temporal. If they threaten us with death, guess what? They can only destroy body, they cannot destroy soul, and heaven and eternity awaits for you and I. And so for everyone here, whatever you are going through, look to the inner joy of heart and soul, knowing that God is working inside of each one of you. He is working to refine you into the image of his son. This is what Paul says in verse 23. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. It is God Himself working in you to sanctify you. And you can be sure that wherever peace is, or wherever this kind of joy is, excuse me, peace is right beside it. The one who has this kind of joy likewise will have this peace. Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And so we have seen those who have the peace with God, those who are in Christ by grace through faith are the ones who have the real joy. And yet this real joy, this rejoicing always that Paul speaks of isn't all that we are to do. Right? Paul says rejoice always pray without ceasing or be devoted to prayer and thank God in all circumstances. And why is that? Why does Paul say that we as a church are to be doing these things? He says because it's the will of God in Christ Jesus for us, for those who are in Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, this isn't a mere suggestion from Paul. He's not saying it would be a good idea for you guys to do these things. No, it is a command. We must do them. God calls them to us, and so we must obey. We must be obedient to God's Word. And we can be sure that when the church rejoices together, when the church is devoted to prayer together, when we give thanks to God, that when trials and conflict and things come our way, peace in the church will prevail. Peace in the church will prevail. Trials will not separate us nor break us. Satan will not cause disunity or discord or chaos. And this is why, brothers and sisters, it is so vitally important that we be devoted to prayer. And not only devoted to prayer, but also thanksgiving. Paul says in Philippians chapter four, verses four through seven, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so we see here, prayer, thanksgiving, and peace all being spoken about together, interconnected. You see, peace isn't something that just accompanies joy. But peace is also enjoined to prayer and thanksgiving. Prayer and thanksgiving is the means by which we obtain greater peace. We've all been troubled by something in our life. Perhaps you had a job interview coming up, a very important one. And so you were nervous about it, you were anxious about it. Perhaps you came down with a serious illness or one you love has come down with a serious illness. And naturally what happens? We're inclined to to worry and get nervous and be anxious and be scared but what is the remedy that God gives to us when we feel this way? We are told to do what? We are told to pray, God says. We are told to pray. James 5, verse 13 says this, Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Later in verse 16, James will say, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. For the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. This is how prayer brings peace to the believer. Because we remember the promises of God as we pray to Him. And when we pray God's word back to Him, we know that God is faithful and true to keep His promises to us. We call out to Him. We petition His throne of grace. And He says He will incline His ear. He will listen to us. And He will answer according to His will. right? What inner peace that ought to bring each and every one of us here today to know that we have this sure promise of God that as sons and daughters through adoption, right, Christ intercedes in our behalf before the Father. That Father and Son sent the Spirit who intercedes for us here on earth. He helps us to, to pray aright. And yet praying or asking and petitioning God isn't all that encompasses prayer. Right? Many, those who probably don't have a very high view of prayer, use prayer as a, as a time to just tell God what they want. And they think like a genie is just going to fold his arms and, and bob his head and they get it. Right? But there's many things wrong with this. First being that our prayers are to be restrained by Scripture. Not our wants and our desires. But secondly, what that type of prayer lacks is thanksgiving. It lacks thanksgiving. People want and want and want, but they're never willing to acknowledge what God has already given to them. This is how so many pray today. And yet don't think that your prayers will be effectual if they do not have thanksgiving accompany them. Don't think God is going to answer your request if this is your demeanor, one of a spoiled child, give me, give me, give me. Rather, we are to look to the Psalms and how we ought to pray. David is a, a good example for how Christians ought to pray. He provides for us a good balance of calling out to God, of petitioning His throne of grace for what David needs. But likewise, not forgetting to, to thank God as well for what He's already done. And so I wanted to look and find for us a a brief example we could read through. And so I think I found one in Psalm 54. So everyone this morning, please turn with me to to Psalm 54. It's a a shorter psalm we can read together. Psalm 54. So hear with me and listen to how, how Paul prays. See if you can see in petitioning and yet his thanksgiving. <clears> o <throat> oh God, save me by Your name and vindicate me by Your might. O oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have arisen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. But behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies and your faithfulness put an end to them. With a free will offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For He has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. You see this, brothers and sisters. David begins by asking God, please protect me from my enemies You seek to destroy me. We see him petitioning the Lord But then what does he do? He moves into thanksgiving and into remembrance of what God has already done. Verse 6 saying, I will give thanks to Your name, O Lord, for it is good. For He has delivered me from every trouble. David asks for God's hand of protection without forgetting to acknowledge what God has already done for him. Right? We ought to look to the Psalms and learn. We, the church, need to learn from David. That when the church is confronted with anything good or bad, we are to seek God and Him alone to satisfy our needs. And yet, we are not to forget to thank Him for what He has already done for us. Whether it's good or bad, whether we have prosperity or conflict in the church, we are to look to God. Instead of everyone panicking, we are to pray And prayer with thanksgiving provides peace to the church. This promotes the healthy character of a rightly ordered church. And so we see we are to rejoice always. We are to be devoted to prayer and thank God in all circumstances. Why? Because this is God's will for the church. And so in response to knowing God's will, we, the church, are to be obedient. We are to be obedient. Don't think that we can do otherwise. And believe that God is going to bless the church. He will not. We must be obedient to our Lord if we desire that He bless us. And remember, it is, it is Satan who wants us to be disobedient. Because he would love nothing more than a church that's fighting. A church that's disobedient. But God has called us to be a church at peace. And we maintain peace when we remain obedient to the will of God. Yet, the rightly ordered church isn't just an obedient church. Paul says one other thing. It is also a discerning church. And so look at verse 19 with me. Starting at verse 19, Paul says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Here is our second and final point. Paul calls on the church to exercise discernment. You see many problems throughout the history of the church. And we can look to the, 20, the 20th and the 21st century. We see all these different cults that arise. Right? And what's the problem with these cults? Well, there's many. But one, one of them is they shut their brains off. And they blindly follow some charismatic vision of, another, of a leader. And even when something arises within them that's telling them what's going on is wrong, they just put it aside and continue to follow this leader. But you see, brothers and sisters, what's great about this passage that we see today is that God is not calling us to shut off our minds. God rather is calling us, us as Christians to turn our minds on and have our minds be active. Right? He wants us to be thinkers. He wants us to be researchers. He wants us to hold those who stand up in the pulpit and preach to the standard and that standard is God's Word, not the Word of any man. Right? We read this in Acts 17. Paul goes to Berea. He enters the synagogue and he begins to preach. And what do, we, what do we learn? The Bereans, they hear the Word. They eagerly receive the Word. But then what do they do? They go to the Scriptures right, to search them out to see if what he is saying is so. Now what's going on here in Thessalonica is the opposite is taking place. Right? The saints in Thessalonica, we are reading, are rejecting the Word. Rejecting all of it. Not exercising discernment at all. Just rejecting. And in their negligence, they were quenching or putting out the gifts of God. Right? And so why can this is why Paul can say they were quenching the Spirit. Because they were rejecting all teaching. And we'll look at what are the benefits then when the Word is proclaimed. We can look to a place like First Corinthians, chapter fourteen, verse three. In contrast to the one who was speaking in tongues, Paul says about the one who prophesies, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and their consolation. And then in verse four, he says the one who speaks in tongues builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Right? Now to prophesy is nothing more than the public proclamation of the Word. It's preaching. And so the the hearers are not listening. They're rejecting everything. And so what they're doing is they are rejecting the means of grace that God has given them to be encouraged and to be built up. That is what they are doing and rejecting. And so, hence, they are quenching the Spirit in their life. They are quenching the means of grace God has given to them. For it is the Spirit who applies these Truths to our hearts. But if you're rejecting everything, there's nothing to be applied. And so if we aren't to quench the Spirit or extinguish the Spirit, and we're not to despise all teaching, what would Paul instead have us to do? He says, test everything. And then hold on to what is good and reject everything that is evil. Cast everything that is evil away. Paul is calling for discernment in the church. That is what Paul wants. You see, you have some in Thessalonica who are rejecting everything. But think about if you had the opposite taking place as well. Think about if you had one group rejecting everything and one group just blindly accepting everything. What's that going to cause? That's also going to cause discord and disunity and infighting between those who accept everything and those who reject everything. This is why it's so important, brothers and sisters, to be a, a discerning church, to use that gift of discernment. And this discernment that we use is a gift. It's something given to us by God. In Psalm 119, verse 66, we read, Teach me Your good judgment, or teach me discernment and knowledge, for I believe in Your commandments. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 12, verse 2? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is acceptable and perfect. You see, discernment is only for the spiritual. Discernment is only for those who have the Spirit of God. And so we being that spiritual body and dwell with the Holy Spirit, we must learn to discern the preached Word. Yet also to receive it and to hold tightly to it. To not despise prophecies. One way to help us to not grab hold of everything that a minister says, though Two is that we are to recognize and realize that when we come to church, we are not coming to hear one man speak. We're not coming to hear one man speak. We are coming to hear the Lord's Word proclaimed. And it is that Word that we test every man's sermon to. We ask ourselves, is what he's proclaiming from the Scriptures? And if it is, if the minister is proclaiming faithfully the Word of God, we are to accept it as such, the Word of God and we are to hold tightly to it. If it is not, though, we are to reject it. This is the role of the church. We've been called to stand together, side by side, in peace, in unity, for the sake of the Gospel. Being of one mind, concerning what the Word says. In doing this together, it will not lead us to discord, but it will lead us to peace. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, after giving directions to the church about how they are to rightly be ordered and function, he says, For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. It is peace that God desires for His church. And that means for us to be led by the Spirit of God. The God of peace and not the Spirit of this world. For it is the mindset on the Spirit that is life and peace, Paul says in Romans 8, verse 6. A peace that surpasses all understanding. A peace that can only come through faith in Christ. You see, apart from Christ, you will have no peace. You will have no peace of conscience. You will have no peace of mind. You will ask yourself, why is this happening to me in my life? What is the point of all this? Why do bad things happen to me? Where am I going when I die? All legitimate questions. But questions That the Christian can answer. And having that answer supplies to us an abundance of peace. Knowing that through the blood of Christ we have been reconciled to the Father. Knowing that in Christ we have forgiveness of sins and we stand in peace with God. This gives our very soul peace. The the peace that this world desires and they do not have. And it is this peace amongst the saints who are obedient to the will of God and who discern rightly the preached word that make up and help to contribute to the rightly ordered church. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truthfulness of it. We thank You for the promises we have in Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would grant to us greater peace in this church, uh, that you, Father, would grant to us uh, that the Spirit would be working within us to stir up greater obedience and discernment. For we know that these things result in peace within the church. And it is peace that we desire, for this is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we come before you this day asking these things yet not forgetting to thank you for what you have already granted to us, that peace you have already given to us in Christ Jesus. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen.